There was a Sunday where um, I looked out and my bride just kept doing this. And I was like, I didn't know what she was getting at. <laughs> I was like, I just stopped it. What? You know? <laughs> and I guess my collar was standing up and she wanted me to pick, you know, I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'm um, trying to expound sacred writ here. And your, your greatest concern is my colleague, but I, so anyway, I apologize for the, it is distracting, you're right. So um, we're gonna talk today, well, I was gonna say very briefly, but I don't know about that, but we are, we're going to talk today about uh, the covenant. Uh, the next covenant we're studying is the covenant of Noah. And there's so, sort of an ongoing debate and scholarship whether or not we're looking at a, a new covenant with Noah or if it's sort of a reestablishment of the Adamic or the covenant that God had with Adam and creation. We've already talked about those, so today we come to the story of Noah. And after they get off the ark, you, you remember, he, God establishes this covenant with Noah and uh, we see for the first time, really, in the Old Testament, we see the actual term, uh, which is the Hebrew term berit, which means to covenant. Uh, we don't see that term used in the early parts of Genesis, but we see the, the sort of the, the symbols and the elements of a covenant in those. But this is the first time we see the actual word covenant used in Scripture. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll be in several, several different places this morning as we talk about um, Noah and the covenant with the Lord. And just sort of as a roadmap of where we're going, we're going to talk about the necessity of the covenant, the parties of the covenant, the terms of the covenant, and the gospel in the covenant. And um, at least eventually we're going to talk about those things. And if we don't get to all of that today, we'll pick up there um, next week. So in Genesis chapter 9, the ark has come to rest, and they have come out of the ark, and God establishes a, a covenant with Noah. Now, before we get to the terms of the covenant and the establishment of this covenant, I want to talk just briefly about the context and the necessity of the covenant, what was going on in the world, that there needed to be uh, yet another covenant. Is it as though God had uh, reneged on the first covenants? Is it as though those covenants uh, bore no fruit and so he's doing away with those covenants and now we have a different covenant? And that is not the case. In fact, we'll see when we get to it, the covenant with Noah, at, uh, at least if it's not the establishment of a new covenant and perhaps it's a reestablishment or reaffirming of his original covenant because the language is almost identical to what you see in Genesis and we'll talk about what that is in a few minutes. But what is it that necessitated this happening in the first place? And if you've grown up in church, if you haven't grown up in church, uh, most people know about the flood. And you can go up to anyone in the street probably and say, um, yeah, who built the ark? Most people will, uh, will say Noah. And they know, and you ask them, how many animals did he take on board with him? And they'll say two of every kind. I mean, people that never went to church seem to know this, this story. In fact, every culture, every ma major culture and civilization world has a flood story. 
It is not always about Noah. In fact, that is the particularly Israel uh, Jewish flood narrative. But all uh, major civilizations have a flood narrative. There is something imprinted on our collective memory that this happened at some time in our history, and it, which is why, of course, you find you know, fossilized fishes on the top of mountains because there was a flood. And the interesting thing about that is, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, is uh, the tops of those mountains were just prior to the flood, the bottoms of the mountains. Okay, you think, um, how did the mountains get there? We'll talk about it in just a second. Uh, one of the other things that rages on in our academic communities, particularly those not of a biblical uh, perspective, is, is the world old or is the world young? And you have this whole old, new, young, new old, new world old world or young earth, old earth debate going on, uh, seems like ceaselessly, because they say, if you look at the earth, it certainly appears to be old. Or does it? Because the fact of the matter is, you can account for the way the earth appears by a little event we call the flood. So, what we get wrong about our interpretation understanding the flood is somehow because it's uh, it's just so fundamental to the biblical narrative and it's such an epic story uh, we teach it from the the smallest child in our Sunday school classes all the way up right and you don't want to you don't want to traumatize children and so we have made and i think this is somewhat of an error on our part we have made the flood cute in fact, you can buy little arcs for children with the little animals, and, and you know, you, you watch the children play in a Sunday school class, you're like, oh, here comes the flood, and then they're, they're, it's so cute. And the fact of the matter is, we cannot even imagine, we cannot even fathom the violence that happens when the flood occurs. It was by far the singular most catastrophic event that's ever happened in Earth's history. And we lose sight of that because uh, we tell the story to young ones, and, and I'm not saying we should try to, to give them the harsh reality of, of death going on around them, but um, because of that, we, we've lost sight of the magnitude of this event. And we talked about some of this um, when we did our uh, series through the book of Genesis, which, by the way, we only got halfway through when we sort of shifted gears because uh, we had been in Genesis for quite a while. So we, we've covered some of this. But just as a way of uh, recollecting what's going on around us, understand that when the Bible says the floodwaters came it, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, it was not just rain. Okay, uh, Prior to the flood, and even secular uh, geologists will agree that at some point in our history, our atmosphere was very different. Okay? The land masses were very different. You've heard about plate tectonics and Pangaea, and they draw some kind of uh, map where you can fit all the continents back together in one large land mass. Of course, they have to shrink and enlarge some of them significantly to make it actually work, but they tell you, you know, they slowly over time have drifted apart, et cetera, you know, and they were once connected. Well, here, here's a food for thought. They still are connected. Because you know what's at the bottom of the sea? Land. 
okay? It just happens to be covered with water, but they're still connected, okay? The, the Earth's crust is still fairly intact, okay? Except for several very, very miles deep trenches that split the globe. And it's interesting that those are the very kind of things that you would see in some kind of cataclysmic upheaval of the Earth's crust. Now, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jane lived through an uh, earthquake in Alaska one time. She could tell you what it's like when the earth starts shaking underneath you. Right? That is nothing compared to what happened the day the Bible says that the earth opened up and began to shake and great waters came out. It's not just that it started raining and then after a while they're like, gee, I hope this stops because, you know, this water's really rising. No, this, this happened in a few moments where the earth, it says, opened up. Well, another, another thing, uh, idea, way to say it is the earth began to shake. Okay? If you've never had the earth open up underneath you or seen it on, on video or whatever, just look at some of the major earthquake footage that you can find. And it's just the earth splits apart. This is happening all over the world. This is global at this point. And it's happening in the, in the most, the, the deepest parts of the earth's crust. And so the earth is opening up and water is coming out, the Bible says, from the great cisterns beneath the earth's crust. Okay? These we now call aquifers. Okay? We know they're there now. We can, we can find them. We know where they're at. They, they map them, and they can even tell you how much water's in them because when they start getting really low, we start being concerned about our water supply and so forth. So when God sent the flood, the earth opened up. And as the earth opened up, and this is happening simultaneously and globally, can you imagine the rumbling, the sound, the roar of as the earth opened up, and they suspect that uh, great geysers of water would shoot miles and miles into the sky and then come back down in buckets in great deluge. Now this is happening all around them. And so the waters are coming up, the rain is coming down, great mountains, as God opens up the earth's crust, great mountains are being thrust into the air thousands of feet high. And you see the, the strata of different rock that he has laid. And you think, well, that had to be pushed up over billions of years as the plate tectonics you know, pushed against either, each other. And it, no, the earth's crust, in just a matter of moments, began to break apart. And all these mountains began to be shoved into the sky. And here's Noah and his family in the ark. And all this is happening around them. It was not quiet. It was not peaceful, it was not childlike, it was not funny, and it was certainly not cute. Because in addition to the, to the deafening roar of the earth itself being broken apart, and the floodwaters coming up, in addition to that were the horrific screams of everyone around them as they're trying not to be washed away, or they're trying to avoid uh, drowning, or perhaps being dashed into a cliff that just moments ago wasn't even there. And they weren't quiet about it. We lose sight of the fact that Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people are the only people to survive. Everyone else died and they did not die quietly. And there's a great, uh, rather famous picture by a French artist. I can't remember his name now. It'd be really cool if I could just tell you. Then you'd think I'm sort of, you know, artsy. But anyway, uh, it, it's a great picture. It's sort of like the last remaining rock. 
and you have about three small children up there, and the husband, well, I, I don't know if they were married or not, but anyway, the mother and the father are, are going under, and they're trying to push a final child on top of the boulder that they might be saved, and then sort of in the background of these places, you see different people at various stages of sinking. It's just such a powerful image of what's really going on as all this around them was happening, the earth's being torn apart. Now, what was going on that made God do that? We read in chapter 6 that the thoughts of men have become only evil all the time. They only thought of evil and they did it all the time. And God recanted, it says, or, or uh, decided he wished he hadn't have created the earth. Now that is a anthropomorphication of God. Obviously God doesn't have regret the way we think of it, but those are the human terms we put to it. But what's going on in the world that they needed or that God wanted to start over? Well, Jude tells us that there were angelic hosts that God did not spare because they left their proper abode. We don't know exactly what he's talking about, but something was going on in the days of Noah where the angelic hosts had left their proper abode. Uh, Genesis 6 tells us the sons of God had looked upon the daughters of men and taken them for their wives, and somehow, we don't know if that was a spiritual inhabitation, if they, if, if they became corporeal beings, but in what way uh, exactly, but in some way, they had begun to corrupt humankind so that you had this intermarrying of angelics and humans. Now, how that happened, oh, it's debatable, but that's, that's not the, the subject matter of, of our sermon today. But if you think, well, they were angels, and Jesus says that angels don't marry, are not given in marriage, well, that's in heaven. He says the angels in heaven are not given to marriage. Uh, and then if you look at the fascinating story, really, in Genesis 19, if you look at Genesis 19, it's the classic, uh, you're probably familiar with the story of Lot as he goes down to the city of Sodom. And it says he's sitting there, and you recall the story why he's sitting there, because God has told Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, you know, kind of uh, makes a deal with God and says, if I can find 50 people uh, that are good, and God said, well, if you can find 50, then I'll recant. Well, he finally works it down to where, to where God will recant from destroying the city if he can find 10 good people. And so Lot goes down to find these good people, and he's sitting at the city gate, and the Bible says, now two angels came to Sodom. Now these two angels show up at the city gate, and I'll paraphrase the rest, uh, rest of the chapter basically, but uh, Lot recognizes who they are, and he begs them not to go into the city because he knows how corrupt and evil these people have become. And so he begs them to come into his place uh, of lodging and, and he would provide for them. And they resist at first, but he is so compelling that they come and they stay with Lot. And the Bible says, uh, interestingly, he said, he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So whatever else angels can do, they can eat. They can be corporeal. In other words, they can have a physical existence. You think, well... Later on, the, the Sodom, the men from Sodom, they, they call these visitors men. 
because they say, hey, these men that came with you, well, they do, but that's because they don't understand who they really are because these angels specifically say, the Lord, Yahweh, has sent us to destroy the city. Well, I would suggest that two men cannot destroy a city, but two angels can. And so whatever else they are, they are corporeal, they can eat, they can have lodging, they can touch people. We'll see here in a few minutes that they took Lot's hand. Now this is interesting to me, maybe this is where uh, J.K. Rowling got her idea for disasperating, right? You can, you can sort of travel from one place to another by holding somebody's hand. Because it says, they told Lot, get up and flee. And he didn't want to take his wife and flee the city. And the angel that was talking to him, it says, took his hand and took him out and placed him outside the city. And it's almost, the, the picture is not one, well, he just led him outside, they walked through the city. Somehow or another, they went from being in the, the, the place, in the place of lodging, to outside the city. Because the angelic being took his hand. So whatever else they can do, they can go from place to place. And although they can be corporeal, they're not limited by their corporeal existence. So it says, so the man seized the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon them, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. They just put him there. Now you recall what was happening. When the men from Sodom saw these, what they thought were men, go into Lot's home, they came to Lot and they pounded on the door and they demanded that he send these angels out so that they could have relations with them. And if you look at 2 Peter and Jude, when they talk about the angelic hosts having abandoned their proper abode, they, they immediately in context start talking about having relations with strange flesh. So there's something unholy, unnatural uh, happening here as these men wanted Lot to send the two angelic beings out so that they could have relations with them. And so desperate were they to do so, they were beating on the door. And you recall the story, Lot says, I have two daughters, I'll send them out, but don't do this to, the, to you know, God's beings. And they said, no, we want the two men that came with you. And it says, one of the angels struck the men at the door blind. Okay? This is how you know they're not just men, right? Because men can't strike you blind. Now, the interesting thing to me is, if I was undertaking something that I, you know, innately had to know was wrong, and I got struck blind, I'd stop. You know, be like, okay, that's a bad idea. In fact, you look at Paul's life, how, how did Christ finally get his attention? Struck him blind. Because for most people, that gets your attention. Not these guys. So determined were they to complete this unholy act and this evil desire that even after they're blind, it says they wearied themselves trying to find the door. Now, I don't know how evil you have to be to be struck blind and yet still clawing at the door trying to commit something unholy, but that's, that's the picture we have. Now, what's that got to do with Genesis chapter 6? My point to all that is that it is possible for angelic beings and human beings to have some form of relation. So you go back to Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God were taking for themselves the daughters of men, and whatever was happening, whatever the product was, the offspring were, they were unholy. Well, this had infested the world 
to a certain degree. And so when God finds Noah, it says the generations of Noah were pure. And he was righteous. And so God chooses Noah to save. He recants that he has created the world and he sends the flood, which I've just described. But why? Why would God do that? I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Why would God allow things to get so bad that he is going to destroy the world? Did he not know? Didn't he know that it was going to get that bad? So why not just not create the world in the first place? I had a student ask the question when, uh, on their writing prompt of why God is good. She said, I struggle with that because once Eve ate of the apple, why didn't God just strike her dead and start over? Why not just start over? You don't have to continue. You do if you've got it planned. And God has never changed his plan. So God never said to himself, Adam and Eve, they got kicked out of the garden. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? I guess we'll just sort of watch and see how it works out. I hope they can handle it. You know, they wanted this freedom of will. They wanted to know good and evil, and now they do. So we're just going to have to see what happens. God knew what was going to happen, so why did he allow it? Why did he take it to the point by the time of Noah, was it seven generations, I think the Bible says, from Adam to Noah? And you get to the point that God is going to destroy the earth because they're so sinful. Why? I mean, it's not like God said, I just know, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll just see. See, God knew what was going to happen before he ever created Adam. He knew it was going to get to this point. Yet he did it anyway. Do you know that when God saved you, he knew everything you would ever do? Wrong and right. And he chose to save you anyway. Which is why I believe is logically why if you are truly saved, it's because you have been called. And your name was written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the world, before you were ever born. You were his. And if you are truly his, then you are truly saved. And if you are truly saved, you cannot lose that. And the reason you can't lose that is because you can't surprise God. You can't suddenly do something. God says, oh, wow. I mean, I, knew you, I know you were going to do a lot, but I missed that one. I didn't nail that one to the cross. So Jesus' blood does not cover that sin. You lose your salvation. If God saved you, he saved you to the utmost. And all your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, is that, an, is that an excuse to sin? What does Paul say? May it never be. It is to be to those who know Christ a comfort. It is not to be a license to what they call antinomianism, which is two Greek words meaning without law. In other words, we are still expected to live in a certain way and honor Christ in the way we live, but it is a comfort to us that when we fail, we are still made holy in him. So what is God trying to discover as he allows humanity to devolve into only evil all the time? Nothing. Because God already knows. He's never had to discover anything. 
Here's why, and this is my opinion, the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, so I'll try not to spend too much time on it since it just are my opinion. But one of the things we see happening around us today as non-biblical people look at the world around them, and you know what they want to know? Why are people so bad? I mean, there, there's nobody that can take a serious look at humanity and say, no, people aren't bad. You know, people are bad. People are evil. People are mean. People are just hateful for no reason. They seem to actually enjoy being hateful. And we look around and we say, well, we need an answer for this. Why does this happen? And, and secular anthropologists and sociologists will say this, it is because of need. Because there's an imbalance between need and resources. And so when we have disparity between those that have and those that don't and resources that people need, we begin to fight. And it breeds this kind of uh, thing in people. And it's because of racial divides. It's because of political divides. And they chalk everything up to the environment. Now here's the problem with that. A little thing called the flood. Because, we think about this carefully, Adam and Eve were given a mandate, right? You know what their mandate is? The creative mandate is very simple. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. We did about the first thing, and that's it. We were fruitful. Well, second thing, we multiplied. And the only reason we did that is because it was pleasurable to us. And if God hadn't made it pleasurable, we'd have just died off you know, right away because we're just disobedient. So we did part of that. But there was every, even after the garden, by the way, Adam and Eve put out of the garden. Now, they live in a world unlike ours, um, and I do ascribe to sort of a Pangean theory. They probably lived on a landmass that was, at least for the most part, a single landmass with a very different environment, which is why people could live to be 900 years old, because the firmament was blocking much of the sun's rays. And that's what causes you to get old and, and wrinkle, by the way, just the sun is constantly bombarding us. So they lived in a world very different. And the world they lived in would be like uh, a hyperbaric chamber, we call them now. And they do, they, uh, do this for sports medicine and stuff because people heal faster if they spend time in a hyperbaric chamber. That's simply a, a chamber where they pump it full of oxygen and then they increase the pressure. And so your body absorbs oxygen at a much faster rate. Which is why, if you look at uh, paleontologists, even will say, what we can't figure out is how the dinosaurs survived because you have this animal supposedly as big as T-Rex and he has the nostrils the size of a horse. In our atmosphere today, you cannot get enough oxygen through those nostrils to support a being that big. But you could if the pressure was greater and the oxygen was more. Which is why they've done experiments that they grow like cherry tomatoes in a hyperbaric chamber, and they get cherry tomatoes the size of softballs. So everything grew bigger, and everything grew longer. So, what is God trying to find out? Um, nothing. What he's trying to show us, though, is this. He put Adam and Eve out of the garden, but they still had everything they needed to be obedient to the command. There was plenty of food, 
Crops grew to staggering sizes, and there weren't that many people. Okay? And even when they began to multiply and after um, they began to have children, they had plenty. They had abundance. There was no politics. There were no race divisions. There was no money. There was none of the things that we look to and blame for our innate wrongfulness. There was just man in the midst of basically paradise, not the Garden of Eden, obviously, but he was in the midst of lush abundance and good health. He lived for 900 plus years. And what happened? Murder. In the context where there's nothing to be murderous over. In fact, it wasn't even over a material thing. It was born of the innate wrongfulness and sinfulness and hate with which humankind has been plagued forever. You know why people are bad? Because we're born in sin. We could live in utopia and there would still be evil. Why? Because we carry it with us. We talk about, you hear people talk about it all the time, oh, the day will come when we're going to figure all the resources out. The day is going to come. We're going to figure out, you know, in one world, we're all going to live in harmony together. It's going to be wonderful, and people are just going to be kind and nice. Never going to happen, because we tried that. God tried that. Not, again, not to find out for himself, but he wants us to understand this. Even in an existence where you have everything to be obedient, it will ultimately lead to only evil all the time. That's the state of mankind. And I think God allows it to take that route because he wants to show you and I just how devastating our sin nature is. It corrupts everything all the time. So he sends a flood and starts over, and then he's going to establish his covenant or reestablish his covenant with Noah. Notice the parties to the covenant, and we'll cover this very quickly and uh, clearly. Uh, at least it's clear to me we're not going to get as far as I had proposed. But I do want to point out a couple of things. Genesis chapter 9, the parties to the covenant, he comes off the ark. Now, he had just been through this, this horrible ordeal. Um, which is why, by the way, you know, people talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. Can you imagine you and seven others, the only people in the world to survive while you listen to everybody else perish and all this crazy geological shift happening? You know, the Bible says when the waters receded, he said he opened the earth up and the waters went back. Where? Well, now we call them aquifers. But... A great deal of rushing water is probably the most damaging force in all of creation. Okay? You think, oh, well, you know, you know the, the, whatever, whatever, the Colorado River running through Snake River Canyon over billions of years carved out the Grand Canyon. No, that happened very quickly. When God opened up the earth and all those waters rushed back into the cisterns, you know what it took with it? Huge pieces of landmass. And it left things like the Grand Canyon. 
So God comes to him. Oh, anyway, so first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat, you know the first thing he does? He plants. What's he plant? He might remember. It had been a long 40 days. He what? He plants grapes, not because he wanted some jelly, right? He plants grapes because he wants to make some wine. And then he makes some wine, and he pours himself a big old goblet full. And I know that because the Bible says he got so drunk, he passed out in his tent. And you think, oh, he wasn't a Baptist, probably. Well, it had been a long 40 days and 40 nights, right? So, in any event, God comes to him. Notice it's God who initiates. Okay? God initiates this, and he says, this verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. This is God's idea. He's the one reaching out. I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants with you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you and your flesh and never again cut off the earth by flood. Notice it's not just mankind, but he's making a covenant once again with creation. The language is almost identical to what we see in Genesis when he gives them a mandate. And you know what the mandate is? Go, be fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? He's repeating the same directive. He gives Noah the same challenge. Go, fill the earth. Be fruitful. Why does God want the earth so full of people? because people bear his image. In fact, we'll see that language next week when we look more closely at the, the, the covenant with Noah. We have that same language about being created in God's image. And when the earth is full of people who each and every one reflect the glorious image of God, it, bring, it brings God glory. So he says, once again, go, be fruitful, and multiply. And then he sets a sign up. And you think, okay, we have the rainbow. You know, scientists have explained how rainbows happen. Um, and far from allowing that to erode my faith, it only tells me that God knows what he's doing. You know why he said, I set my rainbow, I set my bow in, in the sky? You think, well, that just happens naturally. It does now, but it didn't before the flood. They had never seen a rainbow. Why? Because the atmosphere was very different. And for the first time in the earth's history, right after the flood, God creates this refracting light that creates a rainbow. And so, yes, can we scientifically explain how it happens? Yes, but it is God who set that whole thing up. Just makes sense. I'll set my bow in the sky. And here's the thing, if you go, if you go out these doors, turn just a little bit left, that first classroom right there, there's, there's a, a very encouraging poster. 
uh, says, you are loved, you are welcome, you are special, you are valuable, you are, you are all this, and it has a picture of the rainbow, and all are welcome here, and I'm not, not going to go down that road. My point is, the rainbow is not about you. The rainbow is about God and his covenant, never again to destroy humanity. It had never been seen. If you had never seen a rainbow, like your whole life, and not only that, nobody had ever seen a rainbow, and there just simply had not been one, and then you walk out one morning, and there's the rainbow. What would you think? Wow. I mean, that, that's exactly what Noah and his family thought. And for God to be speaking to them and tell them what it means, what a magnificent thing. And here's why I think God did it. Because it's going to rain now on a regular basis. And every time it started to sprinkle, can you imagine what Noah and his family felt and thought? Is it all going to happen again? Is the earth about to break apart? Is the ground going to start shaking and mountains crumbling and people screaming and trying to throw their babies up on top of the ark to save them? I mean, is it all going to happen again? And so that they would not have that kind of fear because they've just been through this, he says, this is my promise. And when I look upon it, it will remind me of my promise. And what he's saying is, it will remind you of my promise to never again flood the earth. Anyway, we'll talk next week uh, more about the Noahic covenant. Just know this, there is a beautiful picture of the gospel in the covenant with Noah and the whole experience that had, that had transpired just before it. And the idea is this, in all of that evil, all the time, destruction and death, they were safe inside the ark. Here's a picture of being in Christ. Being in Christ in the midst of all our own evil, all our own shortcomings and anger and hostility and innate badness, we're in Christ, saved from all that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of order and design. And Father, if we just look carefully, we can see your hand orchestrating history to conform to your plan and your will. And Father, we thank you that you never fail. We give you the glory because you laid the foundations of this world, Lord, and someday you will roll it all up as a scroll. For you alone are holy and everlasting. Thank you, Father, for claiming us as your own, for redeeming us, Father, for putting us in Christ and saving us from ourselves. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.